always said the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to to us. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary. And you're going to have to keep on saying that. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Anders. You want to say what's up, Anders? Hey, everybody. What's up? Yeah, and we're here for our basically renewed podcast episode. So if you guys have been following the OWR podcast, we took a little bit of hiatus, but that's because we were taking making some major changes in our Wisconsin revolution. We had some staff changes. We had some changes within the podcast structure. We finally are launching it on Spotify, which is great. You no longer have to keep your, your tabs open or your Facebook open or your YouTube open to watch that. So you can watch it on Spotify, lock your phone, and it's more accessible. So you can watch it while you're working. You can watch it while you're driving or not watching but listen while you're driving and you can really have fun and listen to the discussion we're having so really excited about the new changes uh Anders, did you want to introduce yourself um uh, i don't know we had you on as the owr podcast before but uh most of the podcasts we've done with each other were part of the empire strikes first podcast so you want to introduce yourself yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> my name is Anders. I'm working over the summer with OWR as an electoral strategist organizer. So um, super excited to be working to get OWR endorsed candidates um, into office, hopefully. Uh, and kind of what we were hoping to talk about today is the the Democrats and, and how they're poised to do in the midterms and how we think that'll turn out. And I think that's really interesting, you know, being that my job and a lot of our work right now has been working on getting the most progressive candidates um, through the primaries in Wisconsin. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about that, looking forward to working with OWR. Yeah, for sure. Really excited to have you on. And I just noticed I didn't really even introduce myself for those who might be new. So I'm Andre. I'm the executive director of our Wisconsin Revolution. And yeah, I've been around our Wisconsin Revolution since 2017. And uh, yeah, it's been an exciting journey. So excited to be launching this podcast. And yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. So the first thing I kind of want to talk about is that there seems to be this complete disconnect of reality between the Biden administration and then the actual voters. So I think um, Biden just recently was like, hey, we have the most booming economy in like, what, 80 years or something like that. So he was touting <laughs> the economy, which, you know, there are some things that are good. Like, obviously, there are more jobs available, but that's only one metric. Like, there's if you're a, a billionaire. The economy is doing great. Exactly. Exactly. Especially if you're an oil company or a gas company, then mm-hmm. you're, it's really great for you. But what I what I thought was just very disconnected is that he's ignoring all the other signs that people are hurting like obviously gas prices are high which they acknowledge that which is true but they're also not actually doing anything to actually stop you know these corporations from profiting off people unnecessarily it's just pure greed obviously food prices are going through the roof and not to mention they're just now addressing the baby formula crisis which they knew about way earlier than they would admit it so it's just like all these factors that are coming into play um and they're completely like in a different reality um of what voters are going through and it's funny because like it, you know, they always say like Trump lived in his own reality and they never wants to address real news. Mm. But Biden administration is doing that also in their own way. So I think it's really funny. And I think it's it's project 
projecting an, an actual slaughter uh, of the Democratic Party. Um, and I and I and, you know, I remember back in 20, uh, I believe it was 2010. Yeah. Back in 2010, when Obama had his first midterm, he said they took a shellacking. I think it's going to be worse than 2010. Um, but the only saving grace I could say that might slightly help the Democrats get young, more young people, voters, um, it's obviously the Roe v. Wade decision, which um, that's kind of the only thing they have to say, hey, we'll defend this, which they probably won't because of Joe Manchin or something like. But mm. um, either way, um, yeah, once you get your thoughts on that, what do you feel about um, how the administration is handling thing? What do you think young voters going to do during the midterms? I mean, I hate to be Mr. I told you so, but um i you know i'm from minnesota i grew up in a very white liberal area and everybody was like we have to vote for joe biden joe biden's gonna be our saving grace um nothing has changed he kept his promise to his wealthy investors he didn't change anything and um those issues that got young voters to turn out and won joe biden the election issues like raising the minimum wage issues like uh, decriminalizing and then legalizing marijuana issues like canceling student debt issues that materially impact people's day-to-day lives have been completely ignored. Um, the only real action that's been taken on big issues like climate have been completely symbolic, like the Paris climate accord, you know, we rejoin that, but you know, there's, there's basically no enforcement mechanism there to make sure that anybody really does anything so I, I think that the, the first two years of the Biden ad- administration can be written off as just like he hasn't really delivered on anything. He hasn't he's completely forgotten about the issues that got him elected. Like I'm not I'm not a person who would run on a public option, but a public option would be a lot better than what we have since he's been elected. I haven't heard the word public option brought up once. They're they're just happy sitting on the Affordable Care Act and letting people die the way that it is. And I think what's particularly scary to me in Wisconsin, I think we all agree, Ron Johnson sucks. But I've been on YouTube a lot lately. And when I'm on YouTube, I've been getting a lot of Ron Johnson ads. Do you know what Ron Johnson's ads are about? They're about high gas prices and the ability, the fact that nobody can pay for their gas to get to and from work. He's actually addressing the key issue. If you look at the ads from Alex Lazary or Sarah Godlewski, they're all about identity politics. Nobody, that doesn't motive, identity politics don't motivate people to go to the polls. And at 2020 was a perfect example of that when the way that Joe Biden got people to vote is advocating for things like debt cancellation and things like raising the minimum wage, which he never ended up doing. So the scary thing is now, even though we all know Republicans Republican populism is so fake, at least they're displaying a populist message. And we're going back through this cycle of Democrats running on no substantive policy and so little, they they have so little substantive change that they'd like to enforce or do that it makes fake Republican populism sound and look real. It's the reason that Ron Johnson can run that ad successfully is because when you compare Ron Johnson to the alternative, Joe Biden's administration, there, at least Ron Johnson is addressing an issue that affects people rather than addressing issues that only affect corporations. And, you know, I can't 
I, I already know that when it comes to why we lose the election, it's already going to be, well, it's the progressives, it's defund the police, it's the Green Party. You know, save me that. Um, yeah, exactly. They had, both, they, had, they had both houses of Congress, they had the presidency, and they didn't do anything they promised. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you hit on a very interesting point there about the right wingers working on populism, because history has what we're seeing is history repeating itself because the Democrats didn't learn their lesson back in 2010. Literally, it's the Tea Party again, but 10 times worse, because now you have like MAGA chuds running all over the place and saying stop the steal was real. You know, um, so it's even worse because they want to completely undermine democracy. So we won't even have a chance to mitigate this if we get all these crazy in here who would be willing, crazies in here who would be willing to decertify an election. So I think, you know, we're we're seeing the failures of a strong opposition party come to fruition in real time. And it, and then, like you said, it's going to be blamed on the voters. It's going to be blamed on third parties. But this has nothing to do with them. You've guys had two years to pass some truly, truly change the legislation and truly institute some some policies that would change the lives. And the things that they did pass, they took away. For example, the three hundred dollar tax credit for children. That's gone. Well, and then and then um, instead of instead of continuing to push for policies that increase uh, the standard of living for working class Americans, they're actually actively fighting to decrease that did you see what the fed chair uh came out and said yeah. it was like hey ridiculous. we gotta we gotta, ridiculous. we gotta reduce wages and and whatever because they have too much buying power but that that's in my opinion is not the real issue because if americans had too much buying power trust me uh you guys would be i mean they already are reaping in record profits but they would be even doing even better um so i think the issues that we need to take away is that democratic the democratic party has not learned their lessons and what we're going to see is a 2010 kind of rematch going on but instead of the tea party is going to be the maga movement um so i think donald trump can have a real chance to to win in 20 uh, 2024 if he's still alive you know the dude is of- the nominee or if kamala harris or people who judge are the nominee donald trump will win yeah, He's already kicking yeah. their butts in the polls. And exactly. I think the interesting wrench into this is the whole, you alluded to this, but the the decision to reverse Roe v. Wade is an interesting wrench in this because I think in any other election year where the Democrats weren't doing so atrociously, that would be a massive saving grace. Like that's a big swing. So the Democrats are still going to lose but that's with this added bonus, this swing in their direction, where so much of the country, almost 80% of the country, even if they don't personally believe in abortion, believes in people's right to make their own decisions regarding abortion. And that even that issue can't carry them. And that case leaks, what do we see? We see Democrats go on to Twitter say we can't solve this issue we need you the voters to solve this issue donate to my campaign vote for me and i think that just shows that that's completely transparent people aren't stupid people understand that democrats would rather fundraise and leave people in the same identity politics loop of gay rights abortion rights women's rights black and brown people's rights 
and leave them in this little loop of giving people a little bit more and then taking it away just to fundraise for themselves rather than do anything. And I think the really interesting part about this is where have the progressives been in all of this, right? The progressive caucus and, and Jayapal and Ro Khanna and Mark Pocan, you know, were a big part of allowing that um, the reconciliation bill to fail by detaching them. That was the death sentence. That was the nail in the coffin for the Democrats. And it's only gotten worse since then. Um, only a few progressives have been willing to stand up to that. And meanwhile, AOC is on her Instagram ranting about why people won't use the word Latinx more, which only 3% of Hispanic people actually use. And I think it's just really frustrating to see that I, I feel like nobody is paying attention anymore. And I think it, it, it honestly makes me really nervous because when people ask me why I was concerned about voting for Joe Biden, this is why. The Republicans have more power now than they had in 2016. Why? Because of Democrats' ineptitude. We're handing them, we are handing them elections by putting people like Joe Biden into office. Exactly. And, and you know, I think one of the things that you really hit on is that, uh, you know, they, they, they continue to focus on these identity policies politics issues but they don't actually work to protect them they're willing to sacrifice those to use those as a campaign crutch for people to vote for them and i don't know maybe eventually people will wake up to this but you can only con people so long before they're like well maybe you aren't really doing anything for me maybe you aren't really protecting my rights Maybe you aren't you don't really care about me because you tell me every year you're going to do X, Y and Z and then you never do it. For example, how long have Democrats been saying they're going to codify Roe v. Wade into? I was just going to say that, you know, and they have not done that. And, and, and even Obama back when he was um, in office, as soon as he got elected, he actually ran on codifying Roe v. Wade. But as soon as he got elected, guess what he said? Ah, oh, that's not a priority. You know, it's, it's not a priority when he had a supermajority. Exactly. So it's just like we. Again, we continue to grow, our, dig our own graves. And before people go out there and say, you just hate the Democrats, I'm a registered Democrat. I'm part of the, a local, my local party board. It's not that I hate the Democrats. I just want them to actually fucking do something. So that's the issue. Um, but I also want to go back to um, the, the Ron Johnson, Sarah Gotlewskis and how they're campaigning. What I've noticed um, is that Ron Johnson, again, he's probably full of, full of crap which we know um, he's running on a populist issue. But if you look at the democratic uh, ads, they're, they're almost full of, they're just big nothing burger ads. Alex Lazary ads are all about Ron Johnson, which if you, if, if you learn from um, the Ron or the, the uh, Scott Walker uh, races is when they made the races. Yeah. When they made the races all about one person, it doesn't work because even sometimes that's the same thing they did with Trump. Or they Donald made Trump. every yeah, they made everything about Trump and then he won. And they made everything about Walker during the recall and then he won. So you can't do that. So that's a bad strategy. Sarah Galuski only um her only thing is her like big thing is Roe v. Wade, right? Which is something that is more substance than just not anti Ron Johnson. But here's the problem. If you don't have 
the senators who are willing to bust the filibuster, which they don't. And if you don't have 60, then it's a, it's a waste of time running on. And then with uh, Mandela Barnes, he's basically just saying that we have to change the people in office, but he's not telling us what you're going to do about it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of ads out there, but not with a, not not with any substance to it. And it's and it's infuriating to me because we fall for this every year because we're so hyped up on the anti Ron Johnson train that we don't even realize that the people that were looking their lights don't even have any plans to do anything for us. So it's you know, it's 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 a continuous cycle of um, that pendulum of like it's going to keep going right and left every two years because no no none of these uh, republican or democrat they actually never do anything for us they make promises and then they break them uh just like you said joe biden ran on a uh, public option and then as soon as he got elected he didn't even mention that his words actually he's been doing things to increase um privatization of medicaid exactly so he's actually making the system worse actively making it worse so it's it's not that he's breaking promises he's actively making the situation worse for elderly uh for our elders and seniors so yeah just a little bit of rant there (laughs) (laughs) i'm not frustrated at all (laughs) not at all not at all I'm, i'm okay i'm just you know just planning on seeing that the future is not bright but you know you know one another thing i wanted to talk about um Mm -hmm. that's related to the midterms is and you and you uh hinted at this as well um is student debt cancellation Mm -hmm. the reason why i think this is such a slam dunk issue this is why i think it's such a big issue um is because young voters we're not really checked in right it's reality. We are because we're political junkies, but the majority of young voters are not checked in. But there's one issue that they care about, which is student debt. And you need and Joe Biden needs young voters in order to win. And he's actively not even addressing the student debt issue. In fact, he said that he was struggling on the decision like, what's the struggle about? Like, you guys can send $40 billion to Ukraine uh, as a blank check, but, you know, canceling student debt for people who invest in the country is a problem? That makes no sense. I think uh, the struggling thing is interesting, too, because it shows just how disingenuous campaign promises from him are, um, being that he had made a decision on this issue when he had that whole, like, Bernie Biden task force thing when Bernie conceded to him and had those two teams come together and create a platform, he had made a decision. He had made the decision that he was going to cancel up to $50,000 in student debt. And now he comes out and says, well, I don't know. I'm struggling with the decision. Voters see what that is. People who have student debt see what that is. And I think what's even more frustrating and just to point out real quick, it it also shows you how worthless task force are. Just stop doing them. Yes. (laughs) Fair enough. But um, and I think also should teach Bernie a lesson not to take the establishment in good faith anymore. But um, no, I, I, I mean, student student debt is a slam dunk, simple issue. And there are so many people and the interest rates are so high that it would provide a massive stimulus to our economy as well. If we're talking about 
you know, net benefit in the economic sense, which I, I, I don't necessarily believe in personally, but I like it, it's, it's a win-win. There's really not, except for the people who, um, the debt holders, the private debt holders that the government contracts to, there's, there's nobody who wins there. And it's really silly because aside from Ben Shapiro, basically everybody agrees with the issue. And I think an excuse kind of given by, by liberals is that, well, Biden has continued to time by time pause the payments to which I would argue as a debt holder, that creates even more stress in the fact that now, okay, well, I have until the end of September till I have to start making loan payments. Right. But, um, so now do I have to prepare to do them in September or will I get to September and have prepared? And then it's kicked down to November. Like this, this thing about making last minute decisions on student loan relief on like the 31st day of every month is absolutely ridiculous and childish. It's how many times has he kicked the can two months down the road? It's not practical. And in fact, is a much worse solution economically for both the economy at large and students. It doesn't make any sense. Not to and mention, again, his decision has been made. Yeah, and not thousand dollars. That's what he promised. And not to mention, it's not really a high bar because if that's your standard, I mean, Donald Trump paused student debt loans. I mean, you just continue that. So it's just like, right. why don't you go a step farther? In fact, he paused it for longer. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like that is not a very high bar. Um, but yeah, I think you know the 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 logical ramifications is that it's one of those situations where like where you give people things you can't take it away. Um, for example, if you give people healthcare, like public healthcare, you can't take it away. Now that you're pausing them, people have gotten so used to used to not having to make these payments and they've readjusted their lives. If you restart it, it's just going to cause ramifications that you have not seen. You're talking about people are spending less on. Um, on purchases, on, on goods and, and consumer products is really going to increase if you uh, restart those uh, student loan payments. It's going to hit the restaurant industry. People are going to go out less movies. People are going to go see check out the movies less. Um, every sector of consumer products is just going to get hit because people have to worry about these extra monthly payments that they haven't paid for years now, including myself. I mean, with gas prices as high as they are, you think I'm really want to go drive to the movie theater? <laughs> it's like I got to pay the, pay for gas to get to the movie theater. And then I got to pay $30 for the movie tickets. I think I'm good. I'm going I'm to just wait till it comes out on HBO Max or Disney Plus or whatever right. streaming service that comes out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, though, obviously it's, it's a, a micro level of like what I would go through, but I think it would hit other people way harder. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's very short-sighted. Um, I think the Biden administration is unwilling to do anything because they're subject and beholden to their corporate donors and overall the, the, the Democratic and Party. And of course they are. Right? Yeah. And I think that's why it's been ineffectual at all, because one thing I can say about, um, the Republican Party, they they shill for the uh, the corporations and, you know, they're pretty upfront about it, but they're actually good at throwing their base red meat. Like, even though it's meaningless and substance, substanceless, um, they do stuff to make the, the, the Republican base feel good. 
you know, it's, it's very they know weird. How to message. Yeah. They know how to message. They know how to communicate uh, and they know how to demonize the democratic party. Um, the, the democratic party does not know how to do that. You know what they say? Oh, the Republicans are, they're reasonable. We can do bipartisan bills. We with need them. a strong Republican. Party yeah. Yeah. It's, it's complete opposite. Like the Republican party would never say that about the democratic party. You know what they say? They want to destroy democracy and they want to raise your taxes and they hate you. They all hate you because they're they think you're communists. all racist. So it's just, they think you're all racist Republicans. So they demonize the hell out of the democratic party party and the democratic party is just like no nah, they're reasonable we can make some deals we can do some bipartisan stuff no you can't you can't we can tell because look you haven't passed anything the only thing you pass is an infrastructure bill that's pretty much a corporate handout and that's pretty much it and doesn't address any issues exactly not nearly enough money to really make any substance change exactly but i think that really encapsulate encapsulate what we think is going to happen for the midterms and why we think it's going to happen. But coming up, we have a really cool interview with OWR endorsed candidate Tom Nelson. We're really excited for you guys to hear this interview. So check it out. Uh, listen to what he has to say and check out his campaign. If you guys got time to so go to Tom Nelson, uh, is it Nelson for Wisconsin, his website? Nelson for WI.com. Nelson for WI.com. So check out this interview and we'll check you guys out. We'll, Hope you guys tune in for the next podcast. We can get on our feet and shout it. Right now is the moment we've been waiting for. Right now, never been a better time. Right now, we ain't waiting for it anymore. Right now, we ain't wasting no more time. Right now, right now. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. Today we have Tom Nelson, who's running for U.S. Senate. And also, for disclosure, he is an OWR endorsed candidate, which we are very proud of that. Uh, we also have Anders, uh, my co-host. Uh, he's uh, previously with the Sunrise Movement, but now he is an OWR staffer, which we are also very proud of. So welcome, Anders. Welcome, Tom. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Doing good. Excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So I'm going to start this off uh, with a very, let's say, poke the bear type question. So one of the things that has been really affecting me uh, about this whole race is that um, there's no actual policy substance in this whole race besides what your campaign is bringing to the table. Um, You're the only one really talking about issues that would address the issues of inflation. You're talking about Medicare for all would help alleviate healthcare costs. You're the only one talking about the trade deals that have destroyed Americans. You're the only one talking about uh, transitioning off of fossil fuels, which is continuing to price gouge consumers today. Um, So it's like what I've been noticing is what the other candidates have been talking about are really identity politics related or or it's just more about um, characteristics of the politician uh, or it's just anti-Ryan Johnson um, substance, which is fine, but there has to be more to that than just that. So I guess for you, from your perspective, um, why why do you think that there has not been an emphasis on policy substance from other candidates except for yourself? 
Well, I think, well, first of all, thanks again for your endorsement. It's a high honor to have that. And it's great. I mean, not just endorsing the campaign, but being true partners in the course. Sunrise with Anders being there at the dawn of the uh, Nelson campaign, practically. So very much appreciated. So I can't speak for my opponents, but having been in a couple of campaigns before, I think the simplest explanation is the right explanation, which is that they think that they can skate through this primary, uh, take a pass on this make up for it with either name recognition or a lot of money on a lot of TV ads and get in the general election. But I think, first of all, I think it's unacceptable because I think that you need to make a good case of why you should be, in this case, the next U.S. senator. And to take that serious by putting together a real policy platform and not just things like let's lower prescription drug prices or let's invest more in our communities, but concrete solutions like a Green New Deal, or in my case, a Blue Green New Deal, or Medicare for All, or raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, or being the only the only U.S. Senate campaign in the country that has come out not with an agricultural plan, but with a food sovereignty plan. Someone who looks at the problems we have in agriculture and food quality, thinking that we need to have structural change. We need to have a complete overhaul of the system because it doesn't work. It doesn't work because we have, you know, you know, we have, you know, we've lost 85 percent of our family farms since 1980. That is a damning indictment on this system. We got to change this. We have to go back to price parity. We have to bust up these agricultural monopolies. We need real broadband access. We need, you know, we need to do so many things. So I can't, speaking about me, I can't honestly, I don't think it's intellectually honest to go into a race like this and not be thorough and not being able to talk about these issues. I mean, that's who I am, Um, it's my core. I take this very serious. And I think that these are the issues that are gonna be the issues whoever takes this seat is going to have to work on. And these are my ideas and hopefully again, enough people to to agree with me or agree with us. And uh, we can go to Washington and do some pretty cool things. Yeah, so I guess, um, to give people kind of a, a landscape of where this campaign is at, there is still almost half of the, in most polls, almost half of the electorate is undecided on who they're going to vote for in um, the Democratic primary. And additionally, I, I know Andre and I have had extensive discussions about how polls released um, close to large ad buys by the two millionaire campaigns, uh, Lazary and Godlewski. Um, directly correlate to them getting inflated poll numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess being like a, the grassroots funded campaign here and being the campaign that doesn't take fossil fuel money, that doesn't take money from corporate super PACs, what are some challenges that you know you either expected or didn't expect that you have encountered when trying to run a statewide race um, well, at the same time, you know, upholding that moral value of right. um, only taking small dollar donations. The challenge is, to be honest with you, I don't I think I think the only challenge that I was a little bit surprised about. And of course, our revolution and Sunrise are the, the exception. But there have been a lot of, I think, groups and organizations and individuals 
that I thought would come board the campaign because we've done so many good things together. We've been successful. That's probably the one thing that I have been surprised about, but I knew that I was going to be outspent. I knew that I was going to be outraised. And we knew that this was going to be part of the campaign money that we were just not going to win. And so we had to make up for it with low dollar donations, a true grassroots campaign, and then some original or cleverness to our communications, to, to our ads. And hopefully that's the kind of combination that will allow us to prevail. Um, it's been unfortunate that I was expecting that we would have a decent number of debates so that we can have a side-by-side -side comparison of the candidates to present to the people. That hasn't happened that much. I think if we would have had more of that and having more coverage, I think the race would be different right now, but it's not. It's not, so we just control things that we can control. Yeah, and I totally get that. And um, I think with every race, especially with a smaller race, you have to get creative. I mean, obviously, if you're you're not selling out to big business, you know, that's just inherently how it's going to be. I think when AOC ran uh, against, what was that guy's name? Joe Crawley. Um, she was out spending like 10 to 1. So it's just like yeah. you have to get yeah. creative. Yeah, you have exactly. to have grassroots exactly. infrastructure. But um, I kind of want to talk about, you know, just – I think the political system as it is now in general, I think um, the kind of system that we've set up is that we do have primaries per se, but we also have anointed candidates in, in our system um, based off arbitrary attributes. Usually it's um, usually it's a characteristic or it's been chosen by the establishment uh, by the establishment itself. What do you, why, how do you think, you know, as a society, we, we can break up that that system because I, I do understand we have a two party system. And, you know, I think that's another topic for discussion. But how do you create a system where um, instead of picking the candidate that was anointed by the establishment, we start actually addressing candidates uh, that actually plan to do something for people and have policy substance. What do you think is the most effective way long-term to address this issue? I think the most effective way, you know, we're going to have to have some sort of campaign finance reform. And I know how possible that is until we get a good working majority in both the House and the Senate. That's number one. I think number two, uh, part of this race was predicated on the DSCC, not um, actively or overtly picking sides, which they haven't. I mean, if they had, I would know and you would know. I think that they might have some favorites that they would want to see come through, but I think that they got burned pretty bad and bad in 2020. And the times already that they put their thumb on the scale, like in Iowa, they've lost. I mean, Ab Abby Finkenauer was supposed to take that away in a cakewalk and she ended up losing. So I think that was a reminder that, you know, picking, you know, let the process turn out. We saw in 2016, think of how 2016 would have been different if we would have nominated Bernie Sanders. Think about that. The people are right. The people are usually on to something. The people are usually head of the politicians and the party leaders. Another good example, gay marriage. You know, it was just, I think, six, seven years before um, that the legislature is putting through these through the anti-marriage amendment and then overnight it seemed like or maybe the just or, you know, that people's opinions start changing, that this is something that we should embrace. 
that, you know, that we shouldn't have these types of amendments and these laws and that it took the Supreme Court. Incredibly, the Supreme Court was more progressive than the right wing legislatures. I think this is another case where if the Democratic Party did not meddle in the 2016 presidential primary and given Bernie a fair shot, I think he might have taken the nomination. And I also think I also think even if he didn't win the nomination, but it was a fair process that you would not have had, you know, not a few progressive Democrats, good Democrats defect and vote for Trump, which they did. There are paper mills in the Fox Valley filled, filled with Bernie Trump voters. And I know that because I know them. And they're not right wingers. They're people that look at the system. They say, this thing is fixed. I don't agree with that. There's also a lot of people that supported Obama, but are running around with these bag mega flag, uh, mega flags on the back of their trucks because they were looking at the system was corrupt. Obama looked like he was the antidote to George W. Bush. And then when we didn't have the best eight years, you had um, you had Trump being the antidote to uh, Barack Obama. And so this is how this is happening. And I think that's what it goes to my theory and all of this. My working theory is that there's a vein of populism coursing through this country, that you have the progressive populism that comes from a good place that appeals to our better angels. And then you got the right wing populism. That's the exact opposite. And I think Democrats need to recognize this. We're not doing this neoliberal, neoconcentric stuff that we got away with in the 1990s. If we do that, we will keep on losing Reagan Democrats. We will, we will have townships become even more redder because we can't offer them. When they say about how economic issues, that social issues, Trump economic issues, if that were the case, then why is Ron Johnson running almost exclusively inflation economics messages on his YouTube videos? Because economics can cut both ways. And if we were to focus on a bread and butter economic issue and then also bring broader issues like climate change, the climate crisis and the Green New Deal and connect it to jobs, I know that that's one of the reasons why Honor supports his campaign is the Blue Green New Deal, the Blue Green Coalition, because that's the method. That's a strategy to accomplish the objectives of the Green New Deal. Right. And I think so you you kind of alluded to this point, but you are the only um, major candidate in this race who is running or has run for office in the past in areas that Trump won. Um, you're from Appleton. You're currently the executive in Outagamie County, which is very much a purple area where Appleton, you know, they're. In local politics, there are some really good progressive leaders, and there are also some unhinged climate deniers. Um, but what what insight do you think that brings into your campaign? And and you alluded to part of this already, but I right. think what special insight do you have to running a statewide campaign against somebody like Ron Johnson as compared to somebody like Mandela Barnes or Sarah Godlewski that have run in solid blue um, right. cities where essentially having a Democrat next to their name gets them a free pass to election. And why do you think um, that outreach to those Trump voters is important? Well, I think it, it's, I think the importance about, I mean, there's one thing that I can point to a real track record of winning six times in red part of the state in two different offices over an 18 year period. I mean, that's a pretty solid track record. I mean, next to being incumbent, that's about as big of a proof point as you can to be able to win a race. So I've got that. But I think more importantly is a lessons learned that the kind of politics that you can appeal to are progressive politics. 
because in a lot of ways, progressive values are American values. And that if you focus on bread and butter issues, if you focus on being a good steward of the public trust, that that's the key to win over independents and some Republicans and keep Democrats engaged. And so if I can win in that way, in a red part of the state, I can do that statewide. And then when I win, I can go to Washington and understand how you can put these economic coalitions together. Kind of like what Paul Wellstone did back in the 1990s, the Wellstone Alliance, where he brought not just economic interests, but he brought together, you know, disparate, you know, interests that that covered social, cultural or or economic because he recognized as kind of like, you know, having um, a class based focus on politics, just like Bernie Sanders, that there had to be a way to bring these folks together under one umbrella or that progressive or the progressive coalition would not work. And so I have seen that and not only getting people together on on the progressive umbrella, but look at the progressive policies and look at the ways that we can use this and get independence and lean Republicans. Because when Democrats accomplish things like the ACA, even though it doesn't go far enough, and I'll go more than just the ACA, Medicare for all, all the way, you can see that the ACA has been, you know, there are a lot of Republicans. There are probably a lot of Trump voters who are on the ACA who have some kind of health insurance. If they didn't have health insurance, they would not be able to pay for cancer treatment that their mom might be going through. Okay, it's not just Democrats that take advantage of this. Republicans drive over bridges that Democrats, you know, pass in legislation or or at the county level. So, you know, you can kind of reverse engineer it, if you will. Yeah, most definitely. And I want to change the subject a little bit because I think there's been a lot of, um, you know, war hysteria with this Ukraine situation. And my question is that um, I find it very interesting that we can just send 40 billion at the blink of an eye to a a foreign country um, that that necessarily, um, I think, you know, they have their own interests and we have our own interests. But the reason why I have an issue with that is because Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water. Right. Um, millions of Americans still don't have clean water. Um, millions of Americans still don't have health care. Why is it why is it that, in your opinion, that issues that relate to uplifting working class people always almost have never get through? But when it comes to benefiting the war industry or benefiting Wall Street, those things pass bipartisan. At the blink of an eye, what is it? What is it underlying issues that is continuing to perpetuate the endless uh, amount of spending for things that will never benefit working class Americans? Well, I think that you know, working class Americans don't have effective lobbyists in Washington. They certainly don't have paid lobbyists, and quite frankly, they don't have effective representatives, legislators, senate, you know, senators or House. Now, that's. Those are the folks that should be standing up. So I would say part of it is a big part of it is the fact that we just don't elect senators and members of Congress that are responsive to working families. As Anders talked about corporate PAC and, you know, they get elected with a lot of money from a lot of bad folks. And so they're going to return the favor. And we don't have enough of the Bernie Sanders or the uh, or the Sherrod Browns or the Elizabeth Warrens who go to Washington and do the right thing, who can be counted on to do things, like to make sure that places like Flint, Michigan has access to clean water, or that we're doing something about 
rural counties, Kiwani County and Adams County that have to deal with runoff from large scale farm operations. So I think it's because they don't have lobbyists and because senators and representatives don't truly represent them. And then as far as, you know, you know, the defense, you know, this is, you know, you know, I think these these defense bills, it's kind of a product of our culture product of our culture that regardless, you know, that defense lobbyists and then a lot of members of Congress, they say, oh, we have to do this in order to have national security, knowing that we spent a lot of money on stuff that has nothing to do with national security. That does not get keep us safe. In fact, a lot of stuff something we spend on only antagonizes our foes and turns allies into foes. You know, it's not, you know, you know, the best way to look at this is every year we pass a defense authorization bill, but sometimes it takes 10 years to pass a bill to reauthorize the State Department. So, you know, through our wallets, through the through the through the purse, we are valuing military conflict more than diplomatic efforts. And so not surprisingly, we have policymakers that jump jump the gun and, you know, go to war and allocate those resources as opposed to using the diplomatic route. And that's a big mistake. And we suffer for it. I have, um, we are helping sponsor or help settling an Afghan family here in Appleton. And their dad worked at the embassy. So he basically served us for 20 years. And then with, with the fall of Kabul, you know, if he was going to stick around, his whole family's going to get murdered. So like, you know, like, you know, got on a plane and came here. We're helping settle them. And, you know, I just look at their faces and here is a family that has only known war and they suffer through war because George W. Bush um, went to Afghanistan. They basically accomplished their objectives within the first couple of months. They were in the exact same position in August of 2021 as they were in December of 2001. Think of how many people were killed on both sides, how many civilians, how much money was wasted, how much, you know, you know, contributing to, you know, to the climate crisis, because we know that when there's a war, you know, there's a lot, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of destruction. So it's it's this country has made so many bad mistakes when it comes to foreign policy and domestic policy. And the reason why Democrats struggle for reelection is because in a lot of these issues, not all in a lot of these issues, Democrats are not better than Republicans. I hate to say it, but it's true. Yeah, I just have a I just have a real quick follow up with that. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that you do is that you point out the issues that the Democrats are doing. And a lot of people try to address that as if like you hate the Democratic Party. But that's not the issue. For example, when you have a child who's doing bad in, in school or they're having troubles in life, what do you do? You try to course correct them. You criticize them. You, you yeah. try to tell them what they're doing wrong in order for them to get their life on track. So I think what you're doing is you're trying to course correct the Democratic Party so that they can win so they can continue to win instead of continuing to lose. Um, that was just something I want to point out. And uh, I mean, look, look, they keep shooting themselves in the foot. I mean, when you go into an election promising a $15 minimum wage, promising legalizing marijuana, promising canceling student debt, and you get into office after people vote for you and give you both houses of Congress and give you the White House, you can't expect you right. can't expect to win races. And that's the reason right. Right. that Democrats are getting 
slammed over the head in all the polls for the midterms. And that's why we're looking at this dire situation. And like that's coming from, you know, talking about a family who's only seen war. I'm only old enough where I've only lived in our country when we've been at war and we have military operations right now in seven countries. Uh, And that's, you know, not to belabor this point, but I do have one more question and it's, and it's switching focus, but basically uh, you know, we're, we're days away expecting the release of the Supreme court case that is expected to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, You have, excellent ratings with narrow and Planned Parenthood. Um, obviously I don't want to belabor all of us in the call here are pro-choice and believe in the women's right to choose. What I am more interested in is your, your stance on the Supreme court. Uh, I know there have been a lot of calls from people to abolish the filibuster and expand the court. Um, I think even now there's become this, this argument is becoming more and more mainstream about abolishing the Supreme court or, term limits for the Supreme Court, um, being that b- both of those latter two would allow for a body that is more in touch with the people right. that they're governing to be making right. these decisions. So what is your view on court reform? Just being that I think the simple answer of abolish the filibuster and court pack then opens the door for what happens the, the next time there's a Republican president, right? Well, I think, I think um, how do we go pack. beyond that? to to stabilize the court system well i think there's three factors that brought us to this point that say that there has to be some kind of reform number one you've got three illegitimate justices number two this country is a lot bigger in terms of population than when we established nine justices um so the representation if you will is not there three that I think six or seven times in the course of this country's history, there has been changes in the makeup of the uh, of the U.S. Supreme Court and or, or n- numbers in terms of like how many seats. And then finally, I think in the last 20, 25 years, this has been more of an activist court in the sense that Republicans um, champion. I mean, this has been an activist court for Republicans. I mean, you know, I think there's probably no bigger example than Bush v. Gore back in 2000. I mean, I was there. I worked for the Gore campaign in Nashville. I missed the call by a couple of hours to go down to Florida for the recount. OK, that race was stolen, by the way. And, you know, the Supreme Court came in and basically handled handed it to George Bush and it was so preposterous. I mean, Alito wrote that this should not be interpreted as a precedent. Really? Really. Every single Supreme Court decision is a precedent. But you're putting like a red circle around this and saying, oh, no, no. no. But yeah, that just goes to show just how political it is. So all those factors taken together, there has to be some kind of reform. I believe that we should expand the size of the court. I believe that there sh- that we should cycle in sitting um, lower court judges. I think we should do that. But I also think that, but my main focus would be to expand the number. And the reason why is that once upon a time, they used to nominate justices that had um, public service background, that they weren't just judges, that they were judges, but had experience elsewhere. You had like um, Earl Warren, he was a judge and he was a governor. Okay. So he had the experience or even Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay. She was a judge and she was a state senator. And those are two very different justices. 
but they were difficult, different than a typical justice because they had not in the majority sense this political experience. So I don't necessarily think that cycling in lower court judges is really going to solve that. I think you need to have people on the bench who have that real world, if you will, real world public service political experience. Yeah, for sure. I think that's something that I think would actually work, but I just don't believe the Democrats have the political backbone to do it. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. But, um, you know, I'm one vote, not 50 plus one, though. But I'll tell you what, I don't care if they're going to say, you know, we should do it or not. I'm I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it because this is what I'm talking about my campaign. And I think that's what a job of U.S. senators, U.S. senators push the needle on these issues. You know, I'm going to push hard for Medicare for all because we need that. Green New Deal. Even if we don't have the votes. Exactly, exactly. And speaking of one vote, one of my issues that I have with the Democratic Party at this point is that um, you're only as good as your worst senator when you have a 50-50 majority or 50-50 split. Why do you think the Democratic Party is unwilling to hold Joe Manchin's feet to the fire? I mean, they could easily, in my opinion, uh, do a lot of things to hold him accountable. They can expose his corruptions, his ties to, to the oil industry. Mm-hmm. Um, his daughter uh, was known for price gouging for, um, I believe it was pharmaceutical. Um, yeah, the, I gotta uh, remember. The EpiPen. Epi- yeah, the EpiPen. So it's, EpiPen. there's so many things that he's corrupt about, and you can literally leverage over his head. And I'm sure the Republicans would do the same on their end. They use every leverage, and that's yeah. why every and they Republican do. vote in lockstep. Yeah, and they, and they do. do. They do. Why and they do you, don't. They yeah, do why do you don't. think the Democratic Party is unwilling to challenge Joe Manchin for his corruption and destroying the Democratic platform? Yeah, I think that there's somewhere along the way, Democrats lost their way as an organized party. You know, there was the joke about Roy Rogers says, I'm not a member of any organized political party, I'm a member of the Democratic Party. So we've always had issues like that. And so it's not surprising. But I think with the thing with, with uh, Joe Manchin, there's this assumption like Joe Manchin is the only Democrat that could hold that seat. No, I totally disagree with this because it goes back to my theory about how you how you run and how you serve, that there's this course of populism. You've got right, you've got left. And if you appeal to our better angels, if you come to a concrete, good economic um, proposal, a plan, a message that will have transformative, transformative change on people in poor parts of the country, like West Virginia. It's the most Republican, but in some respects, it's the most poor. It's the poorest state. You know, how do you reconcile that? That's never been the case in history. So I believe that you can have a true, hardcore, progressive U.S. senator in West Virginia, but Democrats are convinced that the only way to win purple states or even red states is to have a conservative Democrat or a moderate Democrat. And that's because they believe the issues that you would run on are not good popular issues. If you think that, if you really think that, you know, you got to do a gut check. Are you really a Democrat? Do you really believe in those things? You should be proud of the issues and the values that you have in the party and you run hard. And then when you get to office, you act on those values and issue positions. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, you know, one of the major reasons that Democrats are looking at a shellacking in the upcoming midterms, because the failure to pass Build Back Better was, in my opinion, the death blow to Joe Biden's 
presidency. Now he's probably going to lose the House. Who knows if they're going to hold on to the Senate? And if he can't get anything passed with the with a slim majority, there is effectively his presidency is dead for the next two years. So my question for you is, do you think at this point Democrats can save their own asses? And if they can, what would you do? Um, what would you advocate for them to do um, to, to save their majority? Well, I think Bernie has a pretty good idea, which is we just say, you know, screw it and take bills like Medicare for all and just put people on the record, you know, bring it to a vote. Maybe it passes, maybe it doesn't. I was, you know, that's what you should do. I mean, there were a couple of times when I was majority leader, we went to the floor. And we didn't have the votes. <laughs> we didn't have the votes. And it's like, you know, we need to act on this. We need to get it passed. You know, we're just tired of, you know, messing around. Let's just take the vote. I think Bernie's right. I think we just need to start putting people on the record on these big things. And I think it's important also to go back to your districts and say, this is what the ARPA plan is doing. I just put a post earlier this day uh, today. I mean, yesterday, the county board voted um, to build a new communication center. Well, I mean, we know coming through COVID, though, that emergency services were completely strained, whether it's the mask order, you know, whatever it might be. And and the board said, we need to invest in this. You know, um, we have a 35-year-old facility. We've got, you know, the state of public safety now is a lot different. We've had a lot of pressures for emergency services responding to pandemics. And now we're leveraging like $4 million to build this. So we have to tell that story and say this happened because of Tammy Baldwin and because of Joe Biden. Now, whether or not that message is going to carry the day and wins hearts and minds, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, though. But we at least have to we we you know, we owe it to our representatives and the elected officials that do right by our communities and make sure that they are lifted up so that people know that they're the ones who are making a difference. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, I think we got all of our questions out but um you know like i said we're we're glad to have endorsed you uh we appreciate the advocacy that you're doing for progressive policies which i think is very very much not which should be but not the forefront of this um election but yeah. um yeah is there anything that you would like to plug um about the campaign or yeah, I mean, some upcoming know, just- events yeah, tell folks, you know, go to nelson4wi.com. We've got a great website. We've got probably two, three hours worth of material on that. I think we're up to about 60 or 65 videos. We've been campaigning for 20 months. We've got 10 different issue papers. We, um, I think we recently posted our food sovereignty plan. And I'm very proud of that. I talked to John Nichols about it. He thinks it's a great idea. So we're trying to get some traction on that. So go to the website, learn more about that. Uh, stick to our Twitter, follow us on Twitter because we put pretty regular you know, updates and we're very, very active on that, obviously. So that's the best way to keep tabs on us and stay involved. And one other plug, if you go to the Our Wisconsin Revolution Twitter um, starting next week, we're going to have weekly phone or uh, weekly text banks. I'm sorry for the Nelson campaign Tuesday evenings at six. Awesome. So if you're interested in supporting Tom and supporting OWR at the same time, um, the links for that will be on our social media. For sure. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Tom, for joining. So we say we always say the Black Panther Party that they can do anything they want to do us. We might not be back. I might be in jail. I might be anywhere. But when I leave, you can remember I said with the last words on my lips that I am a revolutionary.